You know, faith family, there are hills that we must be willing to die on. There are fights that sometimes we have to engage in. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 8 says, There is a time and a season for all things under heaven, a time for war and a time for peace. You see, there are times in which we must be willing to step in to fight, and sometimes we must seek unity and harmony. And when to respond in different situations and scenarios takes wisdom. But there's a sense in which we must be willing to engage in a fight when it's over something that we must engage with. In the late 1700s, there was a Baptist leaders meeting and a newly ordained young minister met with these older men. And this young man stood up and he called upon the gathering to grab hold of the value of overseas missions. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Well, this young minister was William Carey, the father of modern missions, a man who took the gospel to India and mobilized thousands for the sake of, of the gospel. You see, there are times as a believer in which you have to stand. There are non-negotiables, which scripture commands us not to compromise. We must stand on truth, that there are hills worth dying on. One of those hills is the gospel. The gospel is always under attack. We live in a culture that is pressuring denominations and churches and followers of Jesus to change what we believe. See, we are a people who must hold fast to the truth that we have received. The church does not have the right to change God's word. Believers do not have the freedom to make up whatever we want to believe. We grab hold of, with a white-knuckled grip, that which has grabbed hold of us. That we have received from Jesus and the apostles and the prophets and our forefathers who have gone before us truth. And we cannot change, modify, or reinterpret in order to be liked or accepted by a fickle world that's changing its opinion every day. You see, sound doctrine is a good gift that protects the church from believing lies. And truth in Scripture prevents us from making catastrophic errors from believing things about God that are not true. And throughout church history, many inside the church and outside the church have sought to change, modify, tweak, and undermine the foundation of the very faith that we have held on to. However, preaching and defending and protecting the gospel is worth fighting for. It's worth giving your life for. And that is what we see Paul and Barnabas doing in Acts chapter 15. Let me show you. Grab your Bible. 
And turn with me to Acts chapter 15. We're walking through the book of Acts together as a faith family and seeing how the good news of Jesus has which began in Jerusalem is now spreading outward into Judea and into Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Here we are in Acts 15 and about 15, 20 years have gone by since the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus where he would ascend into heaven. He would sit down at the right hand of the father where he will rule and reign over Russia and China and the United States and Cambodia and all of the nations and all of the cosmos. For that is where he is now and he is soon returning to rescue his bride. We go back to Acts chapter 13 where Paul and Barnabas, they were first sent out by the church at Antioch. They were going to take the gospel to a people who had never heard of Jesus. They went to Cyprus. They went, then went north up into the region of Galatia, which is modern day Turkey. And they're there preaching the gospel and they're planting churches. After that first missionary journey, they returned back to their home church, the church at Antioch, where they are encouraging the church, they're preaching the word and appointing people to Jesus. And that's where we pick up in Acts 15, beginning with verse 1. And the scripture says this, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this. As it is written, after these things, I will re return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again. So the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. But instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols from sexual immorality, 
from eating anything that has been strangled and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city and every Sabbath day, he is read aloud in the synagogues. As the gospel is going forth in the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and through the church, the enemy is simultaneously working in opposition to the work of God. We've already seen this in our study through the book of Acts. We saw this in Acts 4 when the Sanhedrin was persecuting the apostles. We saw this in Acts 5 as we see church members begin lying to the Holy Spirit. We see this in Acts 6 with infighting among the widows within the church. We see it in Acts 7 with the martyrdom of Stephen. We see this in Acts 8 as Saul is breathing out murderous threats and the church of Jerusalem is fleeing for their lives away from the city. We see this in Acts 9 with the, the hot pursuit of the murderous Saul who's seeking to kill and to imprison Christians. We saw this in Acts 12 with the imprisonment of Peter and the beheading of James the Apostle. We saw this in Acts 13 with the opposition of a sorcerer on the mission field who's trying to stop Paul and Barnabas. We see this later on in Acts 13 as an entire city stones Saul to the point of thinking he was left for dead. We see this in Acts 14 with the attack of a murderous mob against the apostles. In each of these trials, in each of these moments, we know from Scripture they are ultimately permitted by God. God, by His grace and for His glory, permits hardship for His people, for their good and for the fame of His name. Now, this is good news. It's a reminder that when you go through hardship in your life, number one, God is faithful, he knows. God is faithful, he ordains. But above all of this, he is working for your good through your hardship. And he's working for the fame of his name and the spread of the gospel to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Oh, beloved, as you walk through hardship, rest in Christ. Continue to trust that God is up to something bigger than you can see. It's also a reminder that when you go through hardship, it does not mean that God hates you. It does not mean that you're walking in disobedience. Sometimes hardship means you're doing the right thing. You're being faithful to Jesus, and yet you're, you're going through hardship and difficulty and pain because God is up to something bigger than you can see. We've seen it all throughout Acts as hardship and difficulty arises against the church and within the church. And yet God is preserving his people. He's advancing the kingdom and he is receiving glory through it all. Well, now here we are in Acts 15 and a new opposition has arisen against the church. False teaching. Jewish Christians were adding Old Testament law to God's free gift of salvation in Christ. I want you to notice this morning in the text how false teaching crept into the church and how we are to respond today. I want you to see this right here in the text. First, I want you to see that we must be watchful for a contaminated gospel. Be watchful for a contaminated gospel. Luke identifies men, verse 1, coming into the church at Antioch, proclaiming circumcision was essential for salvation. I can just hear Paul and Barnabas saying, whoa, 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 no, 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 time out. Uh-uh, that ain't right. No, that's not how this works. 
And we see right there in verse 1 that a, a heated debate begins. There's arguing. There is struggle over this situation. This led to verse 2, a serious argument and debate. You see, sound doctrine matters. You think about Paul for a minute. Here's a guy who could have said, y'all, I'm busy, okay? I'm changing the world. I'm seeing life change. I'm seeing people go from death to life. I'm planting God churches. I'm making disciples. I'm preaching the gospel. Man, God is moving and shaking through my life and through my ministry. But he doesn't do that. He presses pause on his ministry so that he might address this. Paul does not sit back when the integrity of the gospel was at stake. For to get the gospel wrong would make a false message take root and begin to spread that would lead people to condemnation and not salvation. Hear me on this. As followers of Jesus, we cannot sit on the sidelines when essential eternal truths are at stake. We must stand firm in the truth even when it costs us. Jude told Christ followers in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you, watch this, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are commanded to oppose anything that goes against the word of God. And as followers of Jesus, we must be so trained in sound teaching of Scripture that we can sniff out bad theology like canines at an airport. That we can discern when something does not align with the Word of God. In the minds of these Jewish Christians, faith in Christ, it wasn't enough for salvation. So, my question is, how can we discern when someone is changing the gospel? I want to propose to you a simple math equation that lays out for you how you can discern false teaching. It's false teaching math, and it looks like this. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything, it equals nothing. If you add religious works to the gospel, you have nothing. If you add anything to Christ and his finished work, you do not have the gospel. You completely miss what God has done through his son. In the case of Acts 15, these Judaizers came into the church trying to add circumcision, verse 1. They're trying to add obedience to the law of the Old Testament, verse 5. They're adding and adding, saying, well, yeah, you put your faith in Jesus, but you also have to. Well, whatever comes next is false teaching. That doesn't come from the word of God. If someone tells you, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, you have to be baptized to be saved. No. You're adding to the gospel. You're adding things. It's Jesus plus sacraments. No. The scripture is clear. It's Christ and Christ alone. It is just Jesus. Jesus alone is the one who saves Jesus alone is the one you bank your soul upon. It is by his grace and his grace alone. Here we see the seriousness of this issue. Paul and Barnabas press pause on their ministry in Antioch. They travel 300 miles south to Jerusalem to get to the apostles so that they can get everybody together to deal with this issue. You see, if you get grace wrong, you get Jesus wrong. And if you get Jesus wrong, you miss the whole message of the Bible. 
For the whole Bible is driving you to Jesus. Every jot and tittle, every verse, paragraph, chapter, and book is driving you to Jesus. Indeed, the entire Bible is red letter. It's all the word of Christ. It's all driving you to Jesus. He is the king. The Bible is a hymn book. It's all about him. If you get this wrong, the consequences are catastrophic. This is why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. Remember those, those churches he planted that we studied back in chapters 13 and 14? Galatia. He wrote an entire book to those churches, warning them about these false teachers, these Judaizers who are coming in and teaching them, yeah, you've put your faith in Jesus, but it's not enough. You're not really saved because you've not been circumcised. You're not keeping Moses' law. You're not keeping what the Old Testament told you to do. And Paul is confronting that. In fact, Paul would be spending the rest of his ministry fighting against the Jews as they sought to go into the churches that he planted and they would sprinkle false doctrine into the teaching. They would add Old Testament law to the free grace of God. Listen to what Paul tells the, the Galatian church, churches uh, in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm astonished. I am shocked that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Westwood, may we never turn away from the free grace, the precious grace, the gracious grace of the gospel. May we be a people who hold fast to what is true. And hear me on this. There are hills we will die on. And the gospel is one of those hills. And we, we can debate all kinds of things. End times, predestination. We can debate. We can agree to disagree. We can go get coffee. I'll tell you where I'm right and you're wrong. Okay. But this is one we can't flinch on. Here we stand. We grab hold of what's grabbed hold of us. This is something we've got to make sure we get the gospel right. In fact, I'm giving you some homework for this week, okay? Here's your homework. Here's your homework. You can pull out your phone, make a note. Here's your homework. Westwood homework assignment. Read Galatians this week. I want you to go home and read this book. Six chapters, take you 30 minutes. But you're going to see how serious Paul is about grace, about protecting the true gospel, about making sure that you're banking your soul upon Christ and not Christ plus something else. He's calling upon believers to reject false teachers and he's calling believers to hold fast to the true gospel. Y'all, we must be vigilant and watchful for false teaching creeping into the church, which when it does... We must do number two, be vocal to clarify the gospel. Be vocal to clarify the gospel. As Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, verse four, there is, there's great joy. In fact, can I show you something that I love? If I can back up for just a minute, verse three. I love it. Man, they're traveling south. Remember Antioch, it's up north. Jerusalem, Israel, Judea here in the south. And in between, you've got Samaria and you've got Phoenicia, the seas of Tyre and Sidon and the Mediterranean Sea. 
mostly Gentiles. And I was thinking about this last night as I was praying and reviewing my notes. I was thinking, okay, okay, think about this. So we've got Gentiles and Samaritans right here. Paul is now traveling south to Jerusalem. Verse three, as they're going through, they're telling the people in these towns, let me tell you what God's doing amongst the Gentiles. Well, a lot of them are Gentiles. And they're like, oh, yeah, you better believe it. That's awesome. You mean we get in on this, right? That's verse three. They're going through this Gentile area, these, even these Samaritans who are half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile, and they're hearing about the grace of God. Here's another layer to that that I was thinking about last night, is that here is Paul traveling south. He's encountering believers who fled Jerusalem to these areas because of him. And now here he is coming to encourage them in the gospel strengthening them, telling them, hey, let me tell you what God's doing with the Gentiles. Man, every people are coming to faith in Christ all over. Miracles are confirming it. It's amazing. I love verse three. Okay. Then verse four, they get to Jerusalem. There's great joy. They're celebrating. They report all that God has done through their first missionary journey. And what God's doing in Antioch, okay, remember Antioch, third largest city in the Roman Empire, it's a metropolis, it's a Chicago, it's a Dallas, it's a big bustling city where the gospel's taking root in a healthy church and they're sending out missionaries, all that we would be like in Antioch. But then these legalistic religious prudes reign on the parade. These Pharisees come in teaching doctrine of salvation by works. So then, verse 6, the Jerusalem council begins. It's time to clarify the gospel. The apostles whom Jesus appointed will now have a say on the matter. Peter steps up first, gives the first of three speeches at the council that's recorded Then we see second, Paul and Barnabas, and third, and finally, James, the leader of the Jerusalem church. These three speeches give one of the strongest defenses of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone than you will find anywhere else in the Bible. And Peter points to how God has already saved the Gentiles in the church without circumcision and without religious law-keeping. I mean, go back to Acts uh, chapter 10. You see where Peter is there in Caesarea. He preaches the gospel to Cornelius and these Gentiles. The Holy Spirit falls upon them, and he's shocked. He's like, are you kidding me? Look at this. He goes back to Jerusalem in Acts 11. In fact, let's, let's backfill to Acts 11. I want to show you something really quick. He gets to Jerusalem, and he's telling these Jewish brothers and sisters, the apostles, These men that Jesus poured into for years, they're shocked that Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. Look at Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard this, they became silent. A hush fell over the crowd. And they glorified God, saying, So then, God has given repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. They can't believe it. Can can you believe this? Well, now Peter is referencing that moment here at the Jerusalem Council. And if you come back to chapter 15, 
Peter reiterates the gospel. Look there at verse 9. He says it is by what? Look there at verse 9. What's the word? Faith. I heard it right over there. By faith. Verse 9. Not faith plus works. Not baptism. Not church membership. Not giving record. Not being a good person. Verse 9. By faith. Their hearts were cleansed. Not circumcision, not religion, not keeping Old Testament law, not trying to be a good person and hoping that's enough to get me into heaven. No, 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 no. It's by faith. Peter's argument is if God does not require obedience to the Old Testament law as necessary for salvation, then why are you the legalists trying to force it? Why should the Jews put a burden on the disciples that even the Jews can't carry? Y'all can't keep the law. Why are you trying to force these baby Christians to do this? What are you thinking? But rather, put your finger on verse 11, right there. Put your finger on verse 11. Look at this. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. There it is. Case closed. There is no reason to add to the free grace of God that's found in Jesus. And here we sit in the American South where so many people are banking their eternal soul upon being a good person. So many people think, well, I go to church sometimes, so I'm good. Well, I've been baptized, so, you know. My grandmother, she's a Christian, so no. If that is your thinking, you are in danger. You need Jesus and Jesus alone. He alone has done what's necessary to rescue you from sin, death, hell, and the grave. There was a 2020 research survey that was done. Let me make sure I quote it accurately so I can get it right. By the Cultural Research Center. They found that 48% of Americans, almost one half, believe that being a good person gets you into heaven. Almost half the people you know think that they're good enough to get to heaven by their own good works. You want some more discouraging news? Same research group found last year in a survey of pastors one-third of U.S. pastors believe that being a good person earns you a place in heaven. Have mercy. This is why it matters that you bank your soul not upon the teaching of a pastor, not upon some guy in a pulpit, but upon the Word of God. The Bible is inerrant. Your pastor is not. You hold fast to what God has revealed in his word. Don't just say, well, because this guy said it, it must be true. No, you go to the book. You look for the text yourself. Examine everything I say through the filter of the word of God. I mean, let the word be what dictates your salvation. Hear me on this, Westwood. I can't save you on the last day. Jesus saves you on the last day. You trust in him. You bank your soul upon him and you examine everything that comes from this pulpit through the word of God. We let the word do the work. You see, eternal life is not earned. You can't work for it. You don't deserve it. And if you're trusting in yourself, you will never find enough help and enough hope. You can't. We are utterly desperate for the grace and mercy 
that's shown us in Jesus. Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy 1.9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, watch this, not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Titus chapter three, he says, but when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but watch this, according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, watch this, not by works, so that no one can boast. You cannot add your good works to the gospel. God is the only one who saves, not your works, not your religion, not your good works, not your baptism. Listen, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the point of Acts 15. It's Christ in Christ alone. When Jesus died on the cross, he did everything necessary to rescue you from sin and death and hell and the grave. The cross was sufficient where his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. You have Christ and what he did on the cross was enough to pay for the sins of the whole world. Bank your souls upon Christ. In your heart, say, Christ, I believe upon you and you alone. I'm not banking my soul upon myself, upon some religion or some cult or some teaching. I'm banking my soul upon Christ. Jesus, you are everything to me. Grab hold of how important this is, y'all. This is so important. This is far more important than a scoreboard. This is far more important where you're eating lunch today. Is are you banking your soul upon Jesus? Because for many of you, there's going to come a day in which you're going to take your last breath and you're going to be laid in a casket right here. And it's in that moment, the question is, do you know Jesus? That's all that matters. Not are you trusting in Jesus plus something else. It's Christ and Christ alone. You see, world religions will tell you to get to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do that. Do that. Do that. Law, law, law. If you don't do, you're punished. But see, at the cross, Jesus was punished for your disobedience. You're not punished for your disobedience to the law. If you're in Christ, Jesus took the punishment for you. At the cross, he was beaten. He was bloodied. He was punched. He was scourged, had his beard pulled out. He suffered and died a bloody, awful death for your disobedience. And so now you don't try to work to earn his favor. You just bank your soul upon what he's done for you in the gospel. You say, Jesus, I'm banking my soul upon what you did for me. I put my faith and trust in you and you alone. You see, the gospel points you away from your works. It points you to Christ's works for you. It's not about these 
religious rituals that you keep in order to be saved. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. But in our fallen sinful nature, we don't like to hear that. Grace is an offense to our flesh. You see, we like to pull up the bootstraps on our own salvation. We like pointing to the name on the back of the jersey. We like saying, well, I had something to do with it. I had some part in this. I helped. Well, in the gospel, you can't. The only thing that you bring to the equation is sin and brokenness. And guess what? Every single one of us qualifies. But the power of Jesus is sufficient enough to forgive you and to restore you and to bring you back into a right relationship with God and with man. That's what Jesus does in the gospel through his cross. He's made a way to bring you back to the Lord. And here's the truth. If you are in Christ, your salvation is only a work of God's sovereign grace. It's just Jesus. So can I give you some gospel math now? Here it is. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If we add anything to the gospel, we lose him. It's funny, when you add something to the gospel, you're actually taking away from the gospel. When you are trusting in your good works, you're saying, Jesus, your death on the cross was not enough. Thank you for dying, but yeah, that wasn't enough. I need to step in and do something on my own. What you're saying is, I want some of the glory. I want some of the credit. I want to be a part of the equation. I want to be part of the solution. And in the gospel, you can't. It's just Jesus. But may I say to you, Jesus is more than enough. He's all that you need. You see, the gospel is not about what you can do. It's about what Christ has done for you. Can I illustrate this for a second? I'm going to borrow Kevin's chair. Hope that's okay. There's a sense in which many people will treat Jesus like, man, that's such a beautiful chair. It looks great. It's well-founded. I love this. How do you know if you've truly believed the gospel? It's not by saying, hey, look how awesome that is. This is how you know. You put your full weight on it. You put your full weight upon Jesus. Not a little bit of this saying, I hope this thing holds. No, Jesus, you're enough, and so I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm putting my full weight and trust upon you and you alone. Third and final thing is this. We must be humble, applying the implications of the gospel. We're going to spend some more time next week unpacking this last point because there's just so much here that I want us to have some extra time to unpack it. But what's interesting is how James addresses this. Now, this James right here, this is not uh, James the apostle. Remember, he already died under King Herod Agrippa. So this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph. And he steps up here, leader of the Jerusalem church, and he gives some closing remarks to the Jerusalem council. And he makes the argument that what is happening in this moment 
Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus, this was God's plan from the very beginning. He quotes prophets. He quotes Amos chapter 9 and Isaiah 45. He goes back to the Old Testament and says, this is what it's about. This is the case. This is what God said would already happen, and it's happening. And the Jerusalem council unanimously decides. Judaizers, leave the Gentiles alone and stop teaching false doctrine. But as for the Gentile believers, and we're going to unpack this because there's so much right here towards the end here. You Gentiles need to understand that this free grace that you've received in Jesus, you can't go and do whatever you want. You're compelled by the grace of Jesus to love your Jewish-oriented brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot be a stumbling block to them. And Lord willing, we're going to unpack this, but you can understand that this policy that the council is putting together here, they're trying to preserve the Jew and Gentile relationship. It's a call to humility and love. And it has implications of how the gospel is to be lived out for believers. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to today? What are you wanting us to do? This It's your impact point, and it's this. Defend and display the grace of Jesus in the gospel. Defend and display. Be willing to step up and take a punch. I'm standing here. I'm not flinching upon the gospel. But I'm going to display the grace of Jesus by overflowing the love of God to the world around me. It was in 1521 that the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V summoned Martin Luther to come to Worms, Germany. And the command was, you recant of all of your teachings of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, or we kill you. Luther responded by saying this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either, excuse me, back up, or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Your life is on the line. You have to turn away from Jesus or face death. What do you do? May you and I be willing to die on this hill because Jesus went up that Calvary hill and died for us. In light of what Christ has done for us, may we say with Martin Luther and with Paul and Barnabas, here I stand. 
I can do no other. This is the gospel. And I'm not budging.